All right. So, first off, would you please let us know your name? I'm Ty Wardwell. And your pronouns, if you don't mind telling us, if that's yeah, something none. that you need. Great. Uh, I mean, where to begin? My gosh, I when pron even when pronouns come up, that's something that I, ha I have this amazing uh, heart memory, body memory of you being the kindest person to help me segue from not using pronouns to using they, them. You're the first person I asked you, you're the first person I called to ask if you would try using they, them for me. And you said, well, if you want me to call you blue tomorrow or green the next day, you just let me know. And I've carried that in my heart ever since. It was so powerful because I didn't want to take space from people that came before me. Mm -hmm. And so for today, you've already had a big day. You've, you know, you're probably halfway through. Yeah, that's, I guess that's pretty accurate because the day will continue like as soon as my kid is out of daycare. Yeah. Um, and that's the, yeah, the second chapter to the day that every day has. <laughs> and prior to here, you were at a film meeting? Yeah. Um, we are rehearsing. We being Ethan, Folk, and I are in pre-production for a uh, short porn that we're shooting next week. Today we got our cast together, our production manager, assistant director, um, person, along with Ethan and I in a room, uh, basically just going through the, the actions, the scene that we are planning to shoot in a pretty condensed period in a expensive studio. Uh, so today we had a more relaxed environment where we get to try some stuff out. And at this stage, you are still self-funding these projects. Mm. Yeah, we have managed to fund each project from the last one or several, basically. Uh, so that's really nice that we're breaking even on it and not putting our money that we work some day job for into the art that we're making. Uh, that was the case before we moved to Berlin, but since we've been here, part of it is that we've set our lives up and our professional or I guess our cash hustles uh, in a way that they can be independent from our creative work, which wasn't really possible when we were living in the States before coming here. And the trajectory to getting here included working with Ethan Pryor. Yes. When we met in Seattle, actually the first time we collaborated on a project we didn't meet in person, I was in a dance piece that uh, began with a credit scene, basically, a projection that introduced each performer's name in a... How do I describe this? So the text, it was quite a really aggressive soundtrack, very stroby images, and then my name appeared on the screen, you know, Ty Wardwell, 
and the letters were made out of, or it was, I guess the tie was a lighter shade on top of a dark shade. <laughs> um, and the background was made up of all the people that I had fucked. And for each performer, it was the same deal. So it was like Amy and then kind of in the back, like her name projected over this background of the names of all the people she'd fucked. And for some of us, we didn't know exactly like who the, the people's names. <laughs> um, or maybe after the fact I did remember, but as it was presented in that moment. Um, but that's all to answer the question of how Ethan and I first started collaborating. It was on that. Ethan made and edited that credit sequence. And then we ended up through that collaborating on other dance and performance projects. Um, and our last collaboration in Seattle was our first porn, uh, Breakfast in Bed. Which is the, my visible uh, relationship to you as a creative person. That's how, well, either that or the performance you did upstairs by the canal where you were on the corner and there was a bunch of writing and there was a bunch of, it was durational. It was a white room, you and Ethan. At Somos. Yes. Yeah, on Kupfuser. Dumb. Yeah, that, I mean, that was in the first weeks of, oh no, I guess I had been here for almost half a year at that point. That's actually when I met Elliot. It Is was it? that week, yeah. Because remember I met Elliot, my husband now, and co-parent, um, a day or two before Ethan and I had a rehearsal at Somos for this performance, Platinum Plus, where we were auctioning off socks. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I was like, there's something to do with socks. Yeah, we were making a mess of socks in a variety of ways, and, uh, Loading, we found on the street this barber chair that was very heavy, and we were schlepping that um, to the gallery and ran into Elliot on the street. And yeah, I mean, this was in the first like hours, days of us knowing each other, and uh, the butterfly house was a buzzing for me. <laughs> um, yeah. And that was, you didn't meet each other. Prior, that was the first moment you met, or was it... No, we'd met a couple nights before, um, but this was our first kind of, like, yeah. oh, we're running into each other now. Coincidence. <laughs> yeah. I also think if you want to relate to water and boats and swimming, mm. uh, is it still a big part of your dad's life to be involved in boats? But did your parents move inland? Um... I mean, my, so my, both my grandmothers were born on Cape Cod in Massachusetts, uh, which is a relatively skinny circle land. So wherever you are on it, you're quite close to the water. And my dad grew, in, grew up spending summers there on uh, what they call the camp. It was quite, it was, I mean, Cape Cod is now, uh, maybe the reputation is a vacation destination for um, upper middle class wealthy folks but uh, back then if we're talking you know in the 60s when my dad was a kid it was uh, a lot quieter more rural 
Um, and yeah, he grew up sailing. Um, both my parents, yeah, spent a lot of time near the water and they brought us near the water growing up. Had a lot of swim lessons as a kid and yeah, I realized much later <laughs> in life that yeah, the privilege of having parents who made sure that I had the instruction I needed to be safe in water. Not everyone has that. And yeah, as a parent now, I'm really looking forward to doing some swim lessons with my kid. This summer we, uh, in the ocean, I would dunk her based off of like what I saw in a YouTube video of how to start teaching a, a young kid how to swim. And we say, well, I demonstrate first with myself. I say, ready, gay dad, go! And then put my head underwater and blow out. And then with her, I say, ready, baby, go! And she would hold her breath underwater for like a couple seconds. Uh, that was really exciting. Um, I'm so grateful that she is into the water. It was a concern I had. <laughs> Some people aren't into water. Um, and Elliot and I are both absolutely water babies. And we ended up with a water baby. How much of the water baby thing to, I mean, because you're a cancer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, cancer sun, cancer moon. I thought you were triple. I have a friend who's a triple. I thought you were a triple. You're only double. Double, yeah. I'm a That's a lot, though, already. Taurus rising. Um, yeah. Intensely loyal. Care a lot about my home space. And, uh, am balanced and renewed in water. What's funny, though, is you asked about boats, and I've been, I've got a pretty complicated relationship to wind. Like, it really can disturb me. And growing up, sailing, it would be on a small pond, uh, either in Maine or closer to where I grew up in Massachusetts. The wind was always really light. And kind of the work as a sailor was to find the wind. Moving to, I ended up in Santa Cruz for college and joined the sailing team there. And it felt a lot more, <laughs> the focus was, how do you keep the wind and ocean from killing you? <laughs> I mean, maybe not that, I don't know if my life was ever threatened, but we would go out in some serious weather, all in wetsuits, because you just got soaked um, in these boats we were in. And I remember one practice capsizing like four or five times, and uh, that was it for me. <laughs> um, yeah, so I do, I do need water and to be in water But you, I don't get to pick and choose which element, <laughs> you know, I'm immersed in. So yeah, sometimes it's windy on the ocean and uh, 
don't know where that's going. Well, maybe it leads into the talk of like higher power. So sobriety is something that you've cultivated and chosen for a number of years now. Mm-hmm. Do you feel like you have a grasp of what a higher power is? Or like, is it something that's similar to the wind? Mm. Or the elements, you know, things that can take, that can give, but also take, not that the higher power takes from you, but you know what I mean? It's like unknown. Yeah. I mean, it really, sometimes it's when I'm quite uncomfortable that I will receive or acknowledge what my higher power is telling me or what their will is. Um, I mean, the big indicator for me is when I'm getting upset about a person, a situation, a place. It's rarely about that person, place, thing. (laughs) That is just the signal to me that I have some needs that need to be met. It's often just as basic as that. Drink water. Eat some cereal. It's a cereal. Because you've, you've, the family's moved a decent stretch away, about 11 kilometers from here, mm-hmm. and about 8 kilometers from your old house. Mm-hmm. And you're very pleased to be in a different part of town, yeah? Yeah, I've been in Charlottenburg for, mm, what was, July 2019, so three years now. And yeah, it's green. The sidewalks are wider. Less poop and glass? Yeah. I mean, there's still versions of poop. People say, oh, Charlottenburg is great for, you know, families and kids. And certainly develop a particular and new relationship to poop when you have a baby or you're around other babies. (laughs) Poop is poop. (laughs) Yeah. Everybody's got it. I recall doing one, maybe more than one, I can't remember now, a few projects at the house. And then there was like two Libras and a Cancer trying to create a space in a space. Mm-hmm. And those spaces turned out so well. And I, re- I look back at it now because I didn't know your relationship to boating. I never thought about, at least I'm relating to like, how sound a boat has to be. Right. Like, and so, like, to the millimeter, to the finishing, to the, you know, like, there's, there's not that much room for an error, errors on a boat. Right. So okay, yeah. I now it's clear to me where the boat thing was coming from. I it's less about sailing than building the boat. Because I did build a boat in high school. Um, I was uh, not doing so hot my senior year. Like, what do you mean by that? Well, I was... Drinking? No. Um, <laughs> oh, God, no. No, I didn't have a... My friends didn't drink much in high school, um, so I drank a bit my senior year. It didn't really kick off, though, until the summer after. Um, but my last year in high school, I just got burnt out. I'd been really pushing myself um, to have a bunch of stuff on paper to apply to and get into a, like elite four-year college. Um, what does that mean? I did a lot of clubs. My friends and I started a bunch of clubs. We started a photography club, a 
a politics club <laughs> where we would just debate the news. Um, yeah, I was involved in the uh, drama theater society. I did sports every season. Mm. What about or, dance? When did dance come in? Dance wasn't until college. Um, yeah, I didn't really pursue art until I was at school or any sort of movement that wasn't sporty and like competition <laughs> based. Spice. Um, but the, oh, the building the boat. Yeah. I, I mean, I grew up, I learned how to build things, uh, from my dad and watching him work. And he's, he's a measure 20 times cut once, sand it for 40 minutes or sand it for a few days, spend a week applying the finishing coats kind of guy. Um, and yeah, when I was working with you and Elliot on these remodeling projects in our apartment, you were all coming from, yeah, way different <laughs> places of like DIY, Good turn enough. a warehouse into a, <laughs> a warehouse space into a living space or, um, build a ramp out of scraps. Yeah. A, <laughs> or some sort of like set build in a theater when you're already a day behind. Yeah, and you're you're already fucked. Mm-hmm. Whereas I grew <laughs> up with a very patient, exacting, um, like fine finished hobby carpenter and my dad and that's my approach. And I'm also down to like this is who I am as someone who makes things. I take breaks. Sometimes the break can last for a long time and things don't get finished. So I thrive in collaborative relationships, especially with people who finish things. And, uh... Hmm. So you're a project starter and you need a finisher? Yeah, it's, I think that's, that's yeah. pretty accurate, yeah. Mm, I feel like it might be similar. The strong, finishing strong is something I have to, like, remember. Not to race to the end. Or, like, I'm almost there, fuck it, let's just finish it. Mm-hmm. So, you ended up in Vienna? Yeah, after high school. So, I, uh, I was... I was really phoning it in senior year. Well, I just had to drop some classes and wasn't doing much homework and uh, kind of sputtered to the end built this sailboat as a project for my last quarter so I didn't have to go to class. I could just build this thing. And, uh, yeah, I didn't get into the colleges I'd applied to. Had a guidance counselor who gave me this book um, with profiles, or I guess personal narratives of people who had taken time off at various stages of their life, but primarily focused on before and during college. It was published by Princeton Review, which is a uh, kind of corporate standardized test preparation um, company. Um, Anyway, I read about this person who had been an au pair in Vienna and it sounded 
really I like the idea of the adventure of it, but I think I was also quite oriented toward being like one of a kind or like unique in comparison to my peers. I was vegan for a couple of years in high school. There might've been a couple of vegetarians, but I was certainly only vegan in our school. Um, you know, in a class, in a, uh, in a high school of maybe, I think it was like 970 kids at one point, there was, I think a maximum of two people who were out as queer. Um, and for me, I think it was around when I was like 14 that I kind of had these first I don't know, the queer, like, embers. It's funny to say embers, because I think that embers are after a fire has burned. I think they might be. But, I mean, I certainly inherited my queerness from some queer ancestor, I believe. <laughs> um, it wasn't all the environment. I didn't grow up in a queer environment, for sure. It skipped a generation, technically, I guess, right? Mm. Well, who knows? But... Is right? that... Is that <laughs> but, I don't know, I met your family, so I guess I felt like somehow queerness skipped a generation. Skipped a generation? I don't know which... The generation older than my parents? Or, like, your parents' generation? Mm. You, th you believe that you... I guess I thought I would have heard about other queer people in your family, so I'm assuming oh, that no. there are people that you don't know that that were oh, prior, I have no idea. the generation prior to your parents. Oh, I just I don't know, like where does my queerness come from? It's That's not such the, a great question. I think that I mean there's got to be some queerness back there. Um, I uh, so I was looking for. I don't know if I was looking for ways to demonstrate that I was different. It's a story that I tell now, though. That instead of coming out as gay, I came out as vegan. <laughs> instead of following all of my peers to, um, like, four-year college, I decided to take a year off and move to Europe. No one else was doing that. <laughs> and you um, did some journey? And I did this. I, I studied, or I, um, I was an au pair in a town outside Vienna. Um, I kind of followed this person's path because it sounded like, like it'd be fun. And there were some links in the book, hyperlinks that I typed into my Netscape browser and found this uh, kind of like a personal ads website where families would post a little bit of information about themselves and potential au pairs mm. could do the same. In German? No, this was all in English. And it was a few... It was in a few countries in Europe. I don't think it was just Germany and Austria. But no, it was in English, and this family emailed me. We exchanged two emails, had one phone call, and then they said, okay, you're hired. We'll pay for half your plane ticket. Come here on this date. And I was there for a school year. What was your approach to German? Baptism by fire? Um... I took a class 
I really only had to work in the afternoons and evenings, so I had mornings off, and I would take the train 25 minutes into the city and took a German language class four or five days a week. Mm, cool. How far did you get? I don't remember. I didn't, I didn't study very much. I was um, what were you pretty doing? hungover <laughs> for most classes. <laughs> I think I, I don't know how many classes I attended. I didn't retain very much, though. But that was my first exposure to the language. I hung out primarily with people I met through that class, and then some American students. If I found people speaking English, I would just kind of latch on to them. I wasn't really interested in immersing in the culture, except for the like drinking culture of students studying abroad. So there's, there's certainly an English-speaking lifeboat there, right? Mm-hmm. There's a contingency of... Yeah, you can find it if you're looking for it. Easy, yeah. And then you skip back to Seattle? Or did no, you... this was... Well, uh, I first got a little bit gay there. Like, this was also... I mean, when I talk about, like, the veganism standing in for being queer, like, I, I felt like I needed to get really far away um, to put into practice these, like, the queer feelings I was having. And it took me a long time in Vienna, like months and months to even tell someone that I thought I was gay and that I was kind of in Europe to pursue this or just like try it out. Um, And then, you know, so I had started there in September and it wasn't until the spring, but then I had a very kind of queer awakening that spring. And came home... To Massachusetts? To Massachusetts, yeah. Kind of... Yeah. Um, I don't know. Shifted. I wouldn't say I was changed. I was still very much that kid I'd been when I left. But something started then. And how did you find yourself in the Pacific Northwest? After college, I went to UC Santa Cruz, and then a lot of my friends were moving to the Bay or LA, and I wanted kind of a clean break from all that, and had some friends in Seattle who said I could come stay with them while I settled in, and was dancing at the time. I had started dancing in college and choreographing, and wanted to pursue that in the next place I lived. So I signed up for a dance course to like spend a month just kind of doing a version of being a professional dancer. And yeah, meet other dancers, choreographers in Seattle. And uh, yeah, made some connections through there that led to like the work I did as a performer for the next five years I was in Seattle and also saw some performance, in particular the show Turbulence by Keith Hennessy that was just absolutely the kind of stuff where I would see it and just think like, wow, this is a thing that people can do with their time that is righteous and I want to be 
doing this. Um, yeah. And, yeah. Mm, your tree has many branches. I didn't, I mean, I knew all these things, but I didn't put them on the same tree. Mm. There's a t- certainly a trajectory. One thing has led to the next, to the next, to the next. Sure. And, and you met folks in, Ber- like Berlin folks, while being still not living here. Yeah? Like you were meeting, connecting yeah, with Yeah, well, Berlin. the people involved in that show were spending time in Germany, performing, going to this uh, dance like training kind of incubator performance place in Brandenburg called Ponderosa. And so some of the people I met through these summer like dance festivals in Seattle, lived in Portland or the Bay area and would spend time in Germany. And I became, yeah, part of that community. That was part of the reason why I ended up in Germany. But yeah, when you talk about the branches, yeah, I can draw like a line from what I was doing today in this rehearsal to my experience of going to the MUMOC, the Museum of Modern Art in Vienna. And on the main floor, there was a retrospective of Eve Klein work, um, which was, he's the guy who did all the blue and did these performance paintings where uh, femmes were using their like naked bodies as the paintbrush um, to apply blue paint onto, I don't know if they were canvases on the floor, but something on the floor. Mm-hmm. And in the basement, they have a permanent exhibit of work by Viennese actionists. And there I saw people using shit and blood as a medium or as media and another one of these instances where you see something that someone is doing and didn't know that it was possible to spend your time that way and also just to learn of these different ways of expressing yourself beyond like what I had been exposed to like what art was to me when I was 18 versus 1920 that shifted tremendously like moving to Europe and being like having the level of independence I have to travel around and like see the David in Florence and the Caravaggio at the Bellagio gallery in Rome and yeah the art that was like Sheila and Mm. yeah what was available in Vienna So just a quick double back, because a couple, so many things, but you being a cycle courier for what seemed to be more often than not drunk, uh, maybe even tourists or like really fanatics of what it was mostly American football. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because uh, I think of you and I think of cycling because uh, you're an avid cyclist in many different ways, like a touring cyclist or like a city cyclists with several different approaches like the slow road the quick road how (laughs) i mean there's no other better way to get through your life than with a cycle but now you essentially need a very big family bike because you have often lots of things and a child Mm -hmm. and you're so specific about your ownership of 
things and their purposes and what do you mean by that well you, you're very deliberate about having things that are going to last and things that mm. are made well because uh, you pay good money for them and like doing the research around them yeah you're also not afraid of amazon which i was <laughs> like as an american person i guess that that's that's normal you know um and that you've been someone who gives back into the cycling world in berlin as well you've been someone who's been working at it is it a fair yeah. Are they actually? It's an AFAL. Is oh. that a Ferrari? It's similar. <laughs> yeah. It's... Yeah, Rukenwind is this. Oh, AFAL. That's it. Yeah. Ferrari. Mm hmm. Yeah, I think we're a Ferrari. Yeah. I make it's, my. It's all I... E and a big foul. Yeah. Yeah. And I make my annual deposit as a member of the Ferrari. Yeah. Yeah, Rukenwind is this bike shop that I volunteer at. And at, in all the cities I've lived in, since cycling became the main way I got around, I've uh, found a way to be involved to various degrees in bike kitchens or bike nonprofits where I can learn, share what I do know, and also have access to tools. Yeah, I and, mean, this is smart. Yeah, I mean, it's... It's... A f- I mean, certainly it's less expensive to maintain your own bikes, but also really fun and uh i love i love teaching friends how to work on their bikes just so then you know if some small thing is going on that makes it very difficult to ride just adjusting a brake or um some i don't know derailleur a chain like your chain needs oil like how to identify that teaching someone to do that it's gonna really improve their biking experience and mm. that's what we do at the shop we take donated bikes fix them up we have experienced mechanics working with new mechanics um doing everything from you know building up frames or yeah making very minor adjustments to donated bikes that are in pretty good shape and, and then we uh, yeah yeah and then you do what you do, which is amazing, is you give them away. Yeah. To refugees. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah, so we're all volunteers, and we have a very long waiting list. Unfortunately, it takes people months or years to receive these bikes, but oh. refugees um, can just apply for or request a bike for them and their family members, and as we complete them, we them out to folks so we've long been providing bikes for you know folks coming from who are refugees political religious refugees of war in syria iraq afghanistan and then also recently we've had a huge demand from ukrainian refugees yes i have been to there to your shop a few times either to pick you up, but I've also had a project that we managed to get through there once. And I don't exactly know what I was trying to do, but we did some MacGyvering mm. and some tools that weren't meant to be the right tools to do the thing, but in, with the right, like, height bench and actual, um, like, out of the 12 tools you need, like, 10 of them are the right ones, and mm. then two are the, like, punk ones. Or a three-foot wrench handle extender, the Hercules, maybe. Exactly. Were we trying to get a bottom bracket out? We were trying to get a... That's definitely a project I was on for a long time. <laughs> a seized bottom bracket. Yeah. And, it, like, there's nothing like a good vice. Like, if mm-hmm. you have a vice on a table that's already up 
proper above your belly button, you're winning. You're already winning. Yeah. I mean, I say access to tools. When I'm saying tools, I really mean a bike stand. Yeah. Like that completely transforms the bike repair experience for me. Yeah. Even a little like the ones that fold up the clapper, you know, like even that, even if it's not a park, it's going to make all the difference. Yeah. I think it probably took two times or so to like rectify this situation that I felt out of my scope tool wise and space wise to do it. Right. And it's just like when you get all of a sudden you have force of non-nature in your favor and it's like, boom, that everything, it comes loose and nothing slips and no one goes flying across the room and, and it's still there. We're convinced they're still doing it. Yeah. Yeah, and it really, uh, we got a lot of new folks, um, funny enough, during the pandemic that, yeah, came in. Our, like, roster of volunteers really increased and had a lot of folks who were quite motivated to be more involved and, you know, were limited by the size of the shop and the number of stands that we have in terms of our output, but certainly at max capacity. The, mm. the cellar is always full and our appointment book is as full as, it, as we can manage, so. And the space is fairly secure and, and a good price, I remember. Mm-hmm, yeah. I mean, we can, it's, it's a part of this house where refugees and their families live and there's a cafe on the ground floor. I don't know the whole background of the place, Refugio House. But yeah, we're, seems like a place we can stay long term yeah great and of of mandatory need like i mean for a period we had these nine euro tickets to get on the u-bahn which was pretty special but there's nothing like a bicycle mm-hmm. i was going to ask you about recovery it's such a it's like almost an umbrella it kind of is it's an umbrella term because mm-hmm. you engage in several practices that are within that world because mm. you are someone who sponsors mm-hmm you go to meetings mm-hmm. and you have a sponsor. Yeah. And you do the steps. I do. Yeah. You, there's a period where you were pretty committed to meditating. Yeah, before I had a kid. Yeah. <laughs> and that. Not to say that meditation becomes any less effective when, uh, now that I have a kid, it's just. Yeah, I, I meditate a lot less. Yeah. I mostly, when I do meditate, it's with another person. We've found ourselves having that moment a lot in years past. Mm-hmm. Hey, we're, we're about to hang out. We're like, hey, yes, we're going to meditate <laughs> right now. Mm-hmm. The, this is the moment. It's nice having friends in recovery who I can just ask to meditate with me. Again, it's one of these things where I practice it with greater ease or frequency with another person in collaboration. So what are the things that you do privately? I, I know that you're like a gigantic ball fan. Basket, yeah, the basket basketball. of the ball. Yeah, well I listen to I listen to NBA podcasts, I read articles, I'm into NBA gossip and I love my hometown team, the Boston Celtics. And the stats, you love stats. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah, well, I mean, I think, I was impressed. I was like, "Whoa, you know a lot." But for me, really, it's the like I, I cry during 
like interviews and sometimes during games when players are talking about the teamness like everyone supporting each other pulling towards a goal I'm glad I don't play competitive sports anymore but I grew up in that kind of environment and I don't know it's just there's something about like struggle and success as part of a team that I get a real emotional rush from and that's the thing that I love about watching sports is the like how it how I feel it in my heart mm. and also basketball is beautiful as like a choreography of chaos and yeah. intention. And the... I mean, I didn't realize until these playoffs, when the Celtics made it to the finals, actually how violent it is. They played very... The, the term that um, observers and commentators use is physical or force, but really what it is is violence. And, yeah, I mean, that is still beautiful. <laughs> There's beauty in the way that they fall, that these uniforms are designed so that they can slide on this floor where if your skin's going over it, it's going to just tear a layer off. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't know that. That would make sense. Yeah. Because you need grip for your shoes mm-hmm. and the ball. But you need to be able to fall and You don't slide. want to be gripping that floor. Yeah, when you your skin, grow. like you said, your skin to totally grip that floor and you lose. Yeah. Just like that. just like melts off, really. Yeah. I mean, I was terrible at basketball. And still, I... There's a lot of, like, specific tactics or how they run plays that I can't follow. Um, but again, like, my primarily relation my primary relationship to it is through what I feel. So then you got sober via did you do bottom out in Seattle around how difficult it like I feel like that was the your time? Um about like bottoming out and having this crazy physical job going up and down the hills in Seattle and then finding recovery, no? Yeah, I mean it was a very I circled the drain for a really long time before I dropped through, and the drop wasn't really that far. I've I've got a pretty high bottom, Um, but yeah, like what got me there was being, like relying on, like, stimulants and... Downers and pain relievers in, like, various forms. Mostly, like, plant-based. Um, I guess a monster energy drink is not quite so plant-based, but... Um, yeah, I'm just super sensitive to anything I ingest, whether it's substances or feelings. And... Uh, the alchemy of that, trying to get the balance right, whether I was petty-capping, yeah, 
you know, hauling a thousand pounds of Seattle Seahawks fans up a hill or just trying to get out of the house, talk to a partner. I, yeah, tried and I tried to find the, like the right combination of additives to make that work. And I mean, sometimes I guess it did, but ultimately it wasn't worth the cost of hangovers or the times where I'd just be too high to do what I wanted to do. Hmm. I'd love to circle back because there's two, two of the creative practices as well of yours that I know you in real time since mm-hmm. knowing you is you do renditions of people's behinds mm-hmm. in small format for anybody either it be a, a direct message on Instagram or you often have spent a number of years now slugging it out at the markets being in connection with real time people doing tiny ass paintings and having paintings they can get straight away and mm-hmm. stickers or like a, hey this is this is my partner's butt and I would love to have their their the painting of their butt how did you come to doing that i well the story that i tell now which is accurate but it often gets a laugh is that i was making huge ass paintings that no one would buy <laughs> um Ethan and I did a performance in Seattle where, well, it was a, we had a show, like, in a space where we had some sculpture and visual art on the walls, and I did a performance where I was live painting, actually with blue paint on yellow panels, uh, with a oxtail that I had strapped to my ass, and there were these big plywood panels, and... I was calling them self-portraits. And, yeah, that was a blast. Uh, a couple friends bought a couple paintings, but they were all big, and people have smaller apartments in Seattle, or at least my friends did, and they were expensive. So I wasn't selling them. And I don't remember the specifics of the conversation. I have an idea of whom it was with. I think it was a friend that I would have like drawing dates with and the outcome of the conversation was I needed to make tiny ass paintings and then it made sense that they would also be paintings of asses because I've been making ass art for or I had been before that with this film breakfast in bed and yeah and the I mean the tiny ass paintings it you know, it started as a poem, like those three words. Like that's kind of, that's the, that's what the art is. Like when at my stand, when I sell them at markets, I just have a bunch of big signs that say tiny ass paintings. Cause it brings people in we have a conversation and I have these paintings that I render to the best of my ability. <laughs> like what a, what an ass looks like. And, yeah, what I really want to do is kind of, uh, 
yeah, I'd like these custom months where someone, where I can, like, build a level of, like, trust with someone for them to email me a photo of their ass or a friend's and make a painting specific to their desires or sometimes they say, hey, you're the artist, do your thing. And uh, it's fun to see what comes out of that. Sometimes if I don't have a lot of time, they just get a real basic one that looks like a lot of the other ones I make. But <laughs> <laughs> I hope they don't hear this. <laughs> so indie porn has maybe been something that struck your fancy personally and then you started making it? Around I... food? Is... No, I never saw any, like, eh, porn outside of, like, quite mainstream or just porn on aggregator sites until we started making it, and... and Actually, no, this is a good... Sorry. No, well, the first film we made was for Dan Savage's Hump Festival. Right. And I had seen Hump either one or two editions beforehand. So then, yeah, that was the first time I'd seen... Okay. Amateur or indie, yeah, not mainstream porn. DIY porn. Yeah. And so you've been doing that, and you have a series going of food-related... Yeah, we're making nine films about the nine meals of the day, and... If you're lucky enough to have nine meals a day. <laughs> you're getting there, though. Yeah, we're in production for number eight. I thought, I was like, geez, it must be getting close. Mm-hmm. Is nine a real crescendo? Is it even like hashed out yet no great yeah Spontane. it's gonna yeah we don't know what nine will be it's gonna be hard to let go of this series if we do and it's had some it's toured each of them differently mm-hmm. breakfast in bed did pretty well yeah Bre- breakfast in bed toured with hump and then on this best of hump tour after that, so that's been, <laughs> I that's didn't been know about that. All over the U.S. several times, and then, yeah, it's also screened along with our the other films we've made at various festivals, primarily in North America and Europe. It's always enjoyable to see those when friends make their work and we get to see it at the kino down the street. It's such a it feels like such a joyous, compersion filled experience for me. Mm. and you as a performer that's something that I'm always surprised that you have that much uh, courage yeah I yeah I don't know it also doesn't generally seem that sexual the films are sexual in nature but Mm -hmm. they're not sweaty fucky moany That's not true. Yeah, I don't put a lot of self into the films. If I do put... I can feel when the measure of self that I'm putting into my work is exceeding what is... safe for me, healthy for me. Yeah. And... establishing a boundary around that has made it made like art making more joyful and sustainable for me not attaching my identity so much to the work that i make that sounds like good boundaries <laughs> it sounds pretty it sounds like you got a good sponsor and people around mm-hmm. your partner person um someone i really value as well and 
the two of you have been parenting now for some time. That must be... I mean, I, I just have received a dog into my existence half-time, mm-hmm. and it's like a world shaker, let alone a, a being that continues to grow and learn and need so much more than a dog. The dog's kind of like going to be its a, itself, pretty much, I think forever you know it's not you know no language is going to come out of its mouth no mm. like different particular needs and uh, just it's impressive to know people who parent and i love to see queer parenting and the two of you are doing it within the context of being in, in things that i'm involved in with like recovery which is amazing it's more a statement than a question <laughs> um but it's always scared me parenting it's impressive like the prospect of being a queer parent or just the, the um, that people are allowing queers to be parents <laughs> it should be the other way around <laughs> uh, that there must be so, I could only imagine there to be even more difficulties mm-hmm. like pylons hurdles in the way like even I, within the person who carried the child and the way that they had to just deal with what was being said to them in the period of pregnancy and yeah. in the hospital and how, how I mean it, we've got... both we've both sought uh, support from other queer parents and you know Elliot built this um, kind of found people online and built a community of, or like, uh, yeah, a version of a queer family of other people like gender nonconforming folks who were pregnant and had due dates within a month or two of our kid. So has had that, like, group to share experience with. And I think that, yeah, I think that that's what queer survival is about, Mm. is... Finding finding the po- folks with whom you don't have to give the whole backstory. I think it's the same thing with folks in recovery or even just spiritual folks. I was sharing this with someone recently. That if someone tells me that they like have a spiritual practice, then... I don't know there's a does that engender for me some sort of trust or I don't know I guess there's like a shared connection there they've already done some work yeah but I told them like it even happens with with like a Christian who is going to church and studying the Bible and prescribing scripture to me in a conversation like that that doesn't give me a level of discomfort in a way that it did, you know, having grown up going to church and what my relationship was to spirituality before mm. recovery. Um, mm. And yeah, likewise in parenting. Yeah, just knowing, I mean, I now have this connection and understanding empathy for other parents in a way that I never could have achieved without being a parent 
so many of the judgments that I had of the way mm. people parented uh, now feel um, foolish or they were not grounded in experience at all. Speaking of parenting, what time? I, I think this is a good place to. Cool. Yeah, my next the next thing you. on my docket is to go pick up some uh, clothes that the family is giving away. That's right size for our kid right now. Perfect. <laughs> Gonna hop on my bike and load it up. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's weird to have had the corona in between. Um, what used to be a recovery connection where we'd see each other no matter what two times a week just because. Yeah. Like the intentional seeing one another, I, it's up to me to do more of that on my end, you know? like. Yeah, well, from coming from a default of not seeing people anymore, <clears throat> having to, I mean, and also for me having the kid, I've got to find the times when... It's reasonable, but also, yeah, I think that for me, having spent a year or two thinking like, oh, wow, the world is finally on my page, <laughs> like, yeah, we don't have to do so much stuff in groups, I'm realizing yeah. now in the last months that... I need to be with people. I need to be around grown-ups, especially. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's such a pity we didn't get to go to the lake for your birthday and sobriety ber- anniversary this year. Yeah. Yeah, I got canceled two or three times yeah. because of varied, various COVID and weather concerns. Mother nature, et cetera. Yeah. I guess it's all mother nature, really. Mother nature had COVID for the last <laughs> little while. Yeah. But I just want to say thank you so much. Nice to have you over. You're like, I haven't been in your house in years. And I was like, you're probably right. <laughs> um, thank you. Thank you. The two of you have taught me so much. Like, I, I tell lots of stories that well, probably within the sponsor sponsor context. Like, I, when I call you all and, and I'd be like, is this a good time? You're like, yeah, I wouldn't answer the phone otherwise. And, I was, <laughs> you know, like that, I relay that message to other people because I just answer the phone when I can now. I'll call you back otherwise (laughs) when I'm ready. Thank you. And uh, shall we? (laughs) Get get out into the world. Okay. Thanks, dude.